Chapter 18 of The Old Curiosity Shop This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Curiosity Shop by Charles Dickens Chapter 18 The Jolly Sand Boys was a small roadside inn of pretty ancient date, with a sign representing three sandboys increasing their jollity with as many jugs of ale and bags of gold, creaking and swinging on its post on the opposite side of the road. As the travellers had observed that day many indications of their drawing nearer and nearer to the race town, such as gypsy camps, carts laden with gambling booths, and their appurtenances, itinerant showmen of various kinds, and beggars and trampers of every degree, all wending their way in the same direction. Mr. Codling was fearful of finding the accommodations forestalled. This fear increasing as he diminished the distance between himself and the hostelry, he quickened his pace, and notwithstanding the burden he had to carry, maintained a round trot until he reached the threshold. Here he had the gratification of finding that his fears were without foundation, for the landlord was leaning against the doorpost, looking lazily at the rain, which had by this time began to descend heavily, and no tinkling of cracked bell, no boisterous shout, no noisy chorus, gave note of company within. "'All alone?' said Mr. Codling, putting down his burden and wiping his forehead. "'All alone as yet,' rejoined the landlord, glancing at the sky. "'But we shall have more company to-night, I expect. Here, one of you boys, carry that show into the barn.' Make haste in out of the wet, Tom. When it came on to rain, I told them to make the fire up, and there's a glorious blaze in the kitchen, I can tell you. Mr. Codlin followed with a willing mind, and soon found that the landlord had not commended his preparations without good reason. A mighty fire was blazing on the hearth and roaring up the wide chimney with a cheerful sound, with a large iron cauldron bubbling and simmering in the heat, lent its pleasant aid to swell. There was a deep red ruddy blush upon the room, and when the landlord stirred the fire, sending the flames skipping and leaping up, when he took off the lid of the iron pot and there rushed out a savoury smell, while the bubbling sound grew deeper and more rich, and an unctuous steam came floating out, hanging in a delicious mist above their heads. When he did this, Mr. Codlin's heart was touched. He sat down in the chimney-corner and smiled. Mr. Codling sat smiling in the chimney-corner, eyeing the landlord as with a roguish look he held the cover in his hand, and, feigning that his doing so was needful to the welfare of the cookery, suffered the delightful steam to tickle the nostrils of his guest. The glow of the fire was upon the landlord's bald head, and upon his twinkling eye, and upon his watering mouth, and upon his pimpled face, and upon his round, fat figure. Mr. Codling drew his sleeve across his lips and said in a murmuring voice, "'What is it?' "'It's a stew of tripe,' said the landlord, smacking his lips, and cow-heel, smacking them again, and bacon, smacking them once more, and steak, smacking them for the fourth time, and peas, cauliflowers, new potatoes, and sparrow-grass, all working up together in one delicious gravy. Having come to the climax, he smacked his lips a great many times, and taking a long hearty sniff of the fragrance that was hovering about, put on the cover again with the air of one whose toils on earth were over. At what time will it be ready? 
asked Mr. Codlin faintly. "'It'll be down to a turn,' said the landlord, looking up to the clock. And the very clock had a colour in its fat white face, and looked a clock for jolly sand boys to consult. "'It'll be done to a turn at twenty-two minutes before eleven. "'Then,' said Mr. Codlin, "'fetch me a pint of warm ale, "'and don't let nobody bring into the room "'even so much as a biscuit till the time arrives.' Nodding his approval of this decisive and manly course of procedure, the landlord retired to draw the beer, and presently returning with it, applied himself to warm the same in a small tin vessel shaped funnel-wise, for the convenience of sticking it far down in the fire and getting at the bright places. This was soon done, and he handed it over to Mr. Codlin with that creamy froth upon the surface, which is one of the happy circumstances attendant on mulled malt. Greatly softened by this soothing beverage, Mr. Codlin now bethought him of his companions, and acquainted mine host of the sandboys that their arrival might be shortly looked for. The rain was rattling against the windows and pouring down in torrents, and such was Mr. Codlin's extreme amiability of mind that he more than once expressed his earnest hope that they would not be so foolish as to get wet. At length they arrived drenched with the rain and presenting a most miserable appearance, notwithstanding that Short had sheltered the child as well as he could under the skirts of his own coat, and they were nearly breathless from the haste they had made. But their steps were no sooner heard upon the road than the landlord, who had been at the outer door anxiously watching for their coming, rushed into the kitchen and took the cover off. The effect was electrical. They all came in with smiling faces, though the wet was dripping from their clothes upon the floor, and Short's first remark was, What a delicious smell! It is not very difficult to forget rain and mud by the side of a cheerful fire, and in a bright room. They were furnished with slippers and such dry garments as the house or their own bundles afforded, and ensconcing themselves, as Mr. Codling had already done, in the warm chimney-corner, soon forgot their late troubles or only remembered them as enhancing the delights of the present time. Overpowered by the warmth and comfort and the fatigue they had undergone, Nelly and the old man had not long taken their seats here when they fell asleep. "'Who are they?' whispered the landlord. Short shook his head and wished he knew himself. "'Don't you know?' asked the host, turning to Mr. Codling. "'Not I,' he replied. "'They're no good, I suppose.' They're no harm, said Short. Depend upon that. I tell you what, it's plain that the old man ain't in his right mind. If you haven't got anything newer than that to say, growled Mr. Codlin, glancing at the clock, you'd better let us fix our minds upon the supper and not disturb us. Hear me out, won't you? retorted his friend. It's very plain to me, besides, that they're not used to this way of life. Don't tell me that that handsome child has been in the habit of prowling about as she's done these last two or three days. I know better. Well, who does tell you she has? growled Mr. Codling, again glancing at the clock and from into the cauldron. Can't you think of anything more suitable to present circumstances than saying things and then contradicting them? I wish somebody would give you your supper, returned Short, for there'll be no peace till you've got it. Have you seen how anxious the old man is to get on, always wanting to be further away, further away? Have you seen that? Ah, what then? muttered Thomas Codlin. This then, said Short, 
he has given his friends the slip, and persuaded this delicate young creature all along of her fondness for him to be his guide and travelling companion, whereto he knows no more than the man in the moon. Now I'm not a-going to stand that. You are not a-going to stand that? cried Mr. Codling, glancing at the clock again and pulling his hair with both hands in a kind of frenzy, but whether occasioned by his companion's observation or the tardy pace of time, it was difficult to determine. Here's a world to live in. I, repeated short emphatically and slowly, am not a-going to stand it. I am not a-going to see this fair young child a-falling into bad hands and getting among people that she's no more fit for than they are to get among angels as their ordinary chums. Therefore, when they develop an intention of parting company from us, I shall take measures for detaining of them and restoring them to their friends, who I dare say have had their disconsolation pasted up on every wall in London by this time. Short said Mr. Codling, who with his head upon his hands and his elbows on his knees had been shaking himself impatiently from side to side up to this point, and occasionally stamping on the ground, but who now looked up with eager eyes. It's possible that there may be uncommon good sense in what you've said. If there is, and there should be a reward, short, remember that we are partners in everything. His companion had only time to nod a brief assent to this position, for the child awoke at the instant. They had drawn close together during the previous whispering, and now hastily separated and were rather awkwardly endeavouring to exchange some casual remarks in their usual tone, when strange footsteps were heard without, and fresh company entered. These were no other than four very dismal dogs, who came pattering in one after the other, headed by an old bandy dog of particularly mournful aspect, who, Stopping when the last of his followers had got as far as the door, erected himself upon his hind legs, and looked round at his companions, who immediately stood up upon their hind legs, in a grave and melancholy row. Nor was this the only remarkable circumstance about these dogs, for each of them wore a kind of little coat of some gaudy colour, trimmed with tarnished spangles, and one of them had a cap upon his head, tied very carefully under his chin which had fallen down upon his nose and completely obscured one eye. Add to this, that the gaudy courts were all wet through and discoloured with rain, and that the wearers were splashed and dirty, and some idea may be formed of the unusual appearance of these new visitors to the jolly sandboys. Neither Short nor the landlord nor Thomas Codling, however, was in the least surprised, merely remarking that these were Jerry's dogs and that Jerry could not be far behind. So there the dog stood, patiently winking and gaping and looking extremely hard at the boiling pot, until Jerry himself appeared, when they all dropped down at once and walked about the room in their natural manner. This posture, it must be confessed, did not much improve their appearance, as their own personal tails and their coat-tails, both capital things in their way, did not agree together. Jerry, the manager of these dancing dogs, was a tall black-whiskered man in a velveteen coat, who seemed well known to the landlord and his guests, and accosted them with great cordiality. Disencumbering himself of a barrel-organ which he placed upon a chair, and retaining in his hand a small whip wherewith to awe his company of comedians, he came up to the fire to dry himself, and entered into conversation. "'Your people don't usually travel in character, do they?' said Short, pointing to the dresses of the dogs. It must come expensive if they do. No, replied Jerry. No, it's not the custom with us. 
but we've been playing a little on the road today, and we come out with a new wardrobe at the races, so I didn't think it worthwhile to stop the undress. Down, Pedro! This was addressed to the dog with the cap on, who, being a new member of the company and not quite certain of his duty, kept his unobscured eye anxiously on his master, and was perpetually starting upon his hind legs when there was no occasion and falling down again. "'I've got animal here,' said Jerry, putting his hand into the capacious pocket of his coat, and diving into one corner as if he were feeling for a small orange or an apple or some such article. Uh, animal here, what I think you know something of, Short. Ah, cried Short, let's have a look at him. Here he is, said Jerry, producing a little terrier from his pocket. He was once a Toby of yours, wasn't he? In some versions of the great drama of Punch there is a small dog, a modern innovation supposed to be the private property of that gentleman whose name is always Toby. This Toby has been stolen in youth from another gentleman and fraudulently sold to the confiding hero, who, having no guile himself, has no suspicion that it lurks in others. But Toby, entertaining a grateful recollection of his old master and scorning to attach himself to any new patrons, not only refuses to smoke a pipe at the bidding of Punch, but to mark his old fidelity more strongly, seizes him by the nose and rings the same with violence, at which instance of canon attachment the spectators are deeply affected. This was the character which the little terrier in question had once sustained. If there had been any doubt upon the subject, he would speedily have resolved it by his conduct. For not only did he, on seeing Short, give the strongest tokens of recognition, but catching sight of the flat box, he barked so furiously at the pasteboard nose, which he knew was inside, that his master was obliged to gather him up and put him into his pocket again, to the great relief of the whole company. The landlord now busied himself in laying the cloth, in which process Mr. Codling obligingly assisted by setting forth his own knife and fork in the most convenient place, and establishing himself behind them. When everything was ready, the landlord took off the cover for the last time, and then indeed there burst forth such a goodly promise of supper, that if he had offered to put it on again, or had hinted at postponement, he would certainly have been sacrificed on his own hearth. However, he did nothing of the kind, but instead thereof assisted a stout servant girl in turning the contents of the cauldron into a large tureen, a proceeding which the dogs, proof against various hot splashes which fell upon their noses, watched with terrible eagerness. At length the dish was lifted on the table, the mugs of ale having been previously set round, little Nell ventured to say grace, and supper began. At this juncture the poor dogs were standing on their hind legs quite surprisingly. The child, having pity on them, was about to cast some morsels of food to them before she tasted it herself, hungry though she was, when their master interimposed. No, my dear, no, not an atom from anybody's hand but mine, if you please. That dog, said Jerry, pointing out the old leader of the troop, and speaking in a terrible voice, lost a happening today. He goes without his supper. The unfortunate creature dropped upon his forelegs directly, wagged his tail, and looked imploringly at his master. You must be more careful, sir, said Jerry, walking coolly to the chair where he had placed the organ and setting the stop. Come here. Now, sir, 
You play away at that while we have supper and leave off if you dare. The dog immediately began to grind most mournful music. His master, having shown him the whip, resumed his seat and called up the others, who, at his directions, formed in a row, standing upright as a file of soldiers. Now, gentlemen, said Jerry, looking at them attentively, the dog whose name's called Aids, the dogs whose names aren't called Keep Quiet, Callo. The lucky individual whose name was called snapped up the morsel thrown towards him, but none of the others moved a muscle. In this manner they were fed at the discretion of their master. Meanwhile, the dog in disgrace ground hard at the organ, sometimes in quick time, sometimes in slow, but never leaving off for an instant. When the knives and forks rattled very much, or any of his fellows got an unusually large piece of fat, he accompanied the music with a short howl, but he immediately checked it on his master's looking round, and applied himself with increased diligence to the old hundredth. End of chapter 18